Everyone faces challenges every single day. Some are chosen and bring us joy. Some are given to us and bring struggle or pain. Whether the diagnosis of an illness, the news of a friend's death, the loss of a job, or a bike accident, we may be asked to step up to face issues that demand courage and perseverance. Hurt is just one of the many aspects of full lives. Each week on this show, ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope, Dr. Joanne Dahl helps us understand how we can use acceptance and commitment therapy to learn to accept what we cannot change and move forward into a valued life. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joanne Dahl. Welcome to ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope. Let's talk today about a psychological state that has gotten a bad rap, what we call anxiety. Now, I live in Sweden, and here as well as in Northern Europe, there's a word called angst that's translated as anxiety, uh, but seems here to have a deeper meaning, a sort of a special existential anxiety. The English word anxiety is more similar to a state like nervousness or apprehension or worrying. This type of anxiety is very common just before we're confronted with with some kind of a challenge, like a test or a work interview. Most people are scared of public speaking or getting married. So in most cases, anxiety is not a problem. It's just a natural reaction to this challenge. And in many cases, this has to do with me being evaluated. So it's only when anxiety gets out of proportion and starts to interfere with your everyday function that you might get a diagnosis. There's usually three parts of anxiety. A worrying part, sometimes called catastrophizing, a a physiological part, where we all get revved up for fight or flight, and a behavior part that we normally might avoid, but also could become aggressive. Today we're going to learn more about anxiety from an expert, Dr. Andrew Gloucester, who is assistant professor at the University of Basel in Switzerland. Andrew does research there about anxiety, He, like me, is an American living in Europe, a father of two boys and a husband. You can read more about Andrew by clicking on his name on this website on tonight's program. Welcome, Andrew. Ah, Thank you for having me. So, Andrew, uh, the listeners are always interested to know about the person behind the researcher. So tell, tell me how you got interested in anxiety. Well, I actually got into this um, via music. I was a musician before I was a psychologist. And at the end of the time that I was performing, I was a trumpeter, uh, I was struggling a little bit with performance anxiety. I wasn't incapacitated. I could still play. But I certainly lost what I call the bigger picture. That is, I forgot about, uh, about the music. And I was becoming more and more concerned about... Uh, struggling with my anxiety, making it go away. And this is certainly true of many of the people that were around me. 
This is influenced, of course, by perfectionistic expectations in the society. Mm -hmm. Recordings are always perfect. Mm -hmm. Never mind that you have three, four takes to get it perfect, but they're always perfect. And so the expectation of the audience or the perceived expectation mm -hmm. of the audience. And it got so bad among some people that they would self-medicate with um, alcohol or some kinds of medication. And I would never say that they were... Uh, addicted to these types of medication they were taking, but they became psychologically addicted to the point where if they didn't have access to it, they mm. would refuse to go on stage anymore. Mm -hmm. And when I finally switched over to psychology, uh, I, I remember that very clearly, and many of my dear friends are musicians, and so I wanted to dedicate part of my career as a psychologist mm. to them helping um, people like them and, of course, all different forms of anxiety, not just performance anxiety. T tell me about that, Andrew. I'm interested in this performance anxiety. It, I, sometimes you hear that, that you need to have a certain amount of anxiety to perform well. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. I mean, if you're, <laughs> if you're asleep, that's not going to go well. <laughs> so you have to be revved up a little bit. And to a certain extent, having the uh, adrenaline going can improve. You hear that a lot in sports, uh, in music. There's uh, a certain level that that can be true as well. Um, public speaking, that can be true. Uh, and the problem becomes either when that goes out of control or, and I think, probably much more important from our perspective that we're looking at this when you are unwilling to have that that revved up state and uh, so yeah i mean you're right it, it can improve the performance but at the point when you're not willing to have the the revved up state then then even that won't help yeah. does does a performer i mean you who are around that do do performers get used to when they perform many times or is or do a certain proportion of people always have performance anxiety? I would say it's it's probably both. And some very, very famous musicians write at the end of their careers that they still struggled every time they went on stage. Now, what they don't say is uh, whether or not that they were willing to have that anxiety and take it as the performance enhancer that you were asking about, or if they were to the point that they uh, were just so incapacitated, which is Actually, it was pretty much never the case, or they wouldn't have been <laughs> writing about that as a famous person at the end of their career who had still gone on stage. Yeah. You know, Andrew, another thing I'm interested in that is um, when you're performing like that on stage, that's probably one of the maximum exposures of, uh, you know, people are, you have an audience, you're actually, you're being looked at in every single detail, both from your performance and the way you look, and just so exposed. Uh, isn't that, you know, I mentioned in the beginning, it seems to me that, that that's something, a common denominator of this uh, anxiety is that in, in situations where we are evaluated, where we're looked at carefully and evaluated, is that so? Well, that's certainly a, a big part of it. And uh, for something that gets labeled social anxiety, that's, that's the biggest part of it. Uh, I think that you can generalize that a little bit and say whenever you think that there's something dangerous uh, that could happen to you, that's when you're in the realm of anxiety. And that does not necessarily need to be limited to the evaluation of your performance. That could be um, just the fearful place, or it could be the feared future. 
Um, certainly we heard lots of stories about that in the last several years with the financial system going through all the ups and downs that it did. Now, everyone was perhaps a little bit disconcerned about that, but somebody who was looking at this and saying, oh my, how am I going to, how am I going to live because my savings has gone down? And will I then be able to provide for myself and my family? And, you know, that can keep going and keep going and keep going and catastrophizing. And uh, So, yes, you're right. Definitely the evaluation is a part of it, but there are definitely other forms that come into play. Yeah, I'm, I was thinking too, like, uh, I'm thinking also that like, if you are being examined, for example, even in an intimate relationship, I think it seems to me that one of the fears of going into an intimate relationship is that um, the you will be examined. I mean, physically, uh, you may be naked. You, you psychologically, you will be examined by another person, and and uh, this seems to be something that you see in all kinds of that uh, awakens anxiety because it's a feeling maybe that if people really saw me, they would run the other way. I'm a bluff. Right, right. I'm not adequate enough. Yeah. Yeah, and that that does come up, certainly, and uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it's just in intimate relationships. I would say that that can play a role in in many different types of relationships. Uh, You can feel inadequate in, uh, well, probably nearly any type of interaction you have with another human being if you're prone to it and and, uh, you're dealing with it in that way. So, yeah, yeah, that can be a real, real big problem. Mm. Okay. Andrew, let's move on to tell us uh, um, how common anxiety and anxiety disorders are. All right. Well, we're going to have to differentiate a little bit. Um, the answer to both of your questions, anxiety and anxiety disorders, are they're very, very common. But let's stay for a moment just with anxiety disorders. That is the way we talk about them according to the psychiatric diagnoses that we use in our profession. Just if you think about the last 12 months and you're examining the population of the last 12 months, how many people are affected with any anxiety disorder? It it differs a little bit by study, but you would find most things around 18%, 20%. I mean, that's really very, very significant. If you just think about this, the next time you're in a group of 10 people, two of those people, statistically speaking, are probably struggling with an anxiety disorder to the point that they need to be diagnosed. And you know, just multiply that by the people on the bus and the streetcar. This is very, very prevalent. Um, of course, The research shows that it's much more prevalent in females than in men. Um, And why would that be? Well, there's lots and lots of uh, ideas about that. Um, Some of that has to do with some hereditary uh, explanations. I think also part of the way that men and women are socialized to deal with these types of emotions. I'm not convinced when I look at the data that the occurrence of the anxiety is necessarily any different than men and women, but the way that men and women are encouraged to deal with it. Men are just supposed to be tough mm-hmm. and, and not show that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's some debate about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it's probably also important to, to note that this tends to begin in adolescence or in early adulthood. And once you have an anxiety disorder, there's pretty high chance that you're going to have another 
disorder, uh, either another anxiety disorder within the categories of anxiety disorders or a mood disorder. So this can really get to the point that uh, people are functionally impaired. Now, that is what I'm referring to right now is only within the category of DSM as we refer to it, the psychiatric diagnoses. But of course, anxiety is, is very common. Uh, you and I experience anxiety. We might even, I can speak for myself, I'm a little bit anxious right now, mm-hmm. <laughs> making sure that I'm helping uh, and, and doing what I'm here to do. Um, at the same time, anxiety, I think, is something that every human being is, is familiar with. Yeah. You mentioned uh, that, that it begins with adolescence. Um, is, is that the age, or what age would you say anxiety begins at? Well, uh, again, when I say that it starts at adolescence, that's referring to the diagnoses. And, and on average, that's when the uh, frequency of diagnoses starts to pick up. But anxiety, of course, is experienced from from the get-go, babies are able to experience anxiety. And, I mean, I don't think it's it's the whole picture to say that the anxiety is is exactly what is is being diagnosed. Early on in life, we we have these experiences um, that when we're struggling, we try and and deal with that in a different way. Um, But, you know, Perhaps I can give an example of, of sure, do that. natural language processes that are at work. Um, so you, you have the anxiety, and what you do with it is, from the act perspective, what matters. And so my son is about three years old. I was just starting to work with him on some of these things and trying to get him to be more flexible, apply my, mm-hmm. my son's tool bag to help him and his development and I would walk around with him and say you can do this and have your your feeling you can be mad and still clean up your room and all these different things and so when he was three we went to a pool and uh, he wanted to go down the slide for the big kids well I said okay if you want to do that sure go ahead and he goes on over there and starts to climb up the ladder and he gets to the top, and he realizes it's just a little bit higher than maybe. <laughs> he to me, hey, Dad, I'm afraid. And while he's there holding on to the sides, not willing to come down the line of other children. <laughs> I can see it. Of course, I'm sweating. Oh, my, what do I do? I'm trying to help my son, and I don't want him to become too anxious here. And finally, he decides that he's going to get down. He's not going to go down the slide. And he comes back over and he jumps in my arms. And I say, hey, no problem, buddy. We can just have some fun here in the pool. And this goes on for a while. And we're getting closer to 5 o'clock when the pool is closing. And then he said, Dad, I want to try it again. I want to go over there. Okay, you know, this time I'm really sweating. I don't want <laughs> experiences. So he climbs back up there. And he gets up to the top and he yells, Daddy, I'm afraid, and I'm going down. <laughs> so he flies down that slide. My arms, the huge 
smile and he's so excited. And, and then we only have five minutes left, but I let him go as many times as he could in those five minutes just to enjoy all that. And that was just a wonderful experience. But really the, the interesting part for me came about 10 days later. We were at home in the backyard and there was a, a double swing. I'm not really sure what the technical name of it is, but with the two kids face each other and they're swinging back and forth and one pushes and one pulls. And he was on that. I was pushing him. He said, Dad, why don't you get on? Without really thinking what I was saying, I said, oh, uh, son, I'm, I'm afraid I'll break it. And he just comes right back at me. Dad, you can be afraid and you can swing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wonderful story. <laughs> That's what I got in that swing. Um, but the reason I tell that story as much, I mean, I love my son and I love, I'm so proud of him, but it, it's three years old. He's already able to pick up on, on some of the facts that he can have the anxiety and still do what's important. He can still go down the slide. He can still swing and we can too. I mean, we can have the anxiety. We can walk down the aisle. We can give the interview. We can go out of the house. We can do the things that we need to do and have the anxiety. It might not always be fun, but we can do it. Andrew, I have to ask you a question about that. Um, you know, um, I work with self-compassion. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we talk about, when you say walking down the aisle, I'm thinking uh, sometimes anxiety is a sign you know that um that we might use uh like an inner voice telling you this is not a good idea like the uh, the alarm goes off like don't do this whatever it is you're doing um and 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 you know you and i as um behaviorists because of our learning history it's not always easy to interpret anxiety like, does this mean something? Does this mean that, you know, you gave examples, you can have anxiety and go forward, but couldn't it also be that anxiety is telling us maybe not to go forward? Sure, sure. Uh, I would never advocate for ignoring anxiety. I would always advocate for taking anxiety for what it is, and that is uh, an emotion that can be uncomfortable, uh, an emotion that can tell us certain things could be very, very dangerous. Uh, The emotion itself, I wouldn't necessarily trust, though, to make that decision. Uh, It it could be out that you need to be very careful. Certainly, anxiety can can save us from, from literally save our lives from life-threatening things. Uh, If you don't have an anxiety, don't possess the ability to be anxious, you will most likely die within a week. Uh, I'm thinking about just try and cross the road without anxiety. Um, you're going to get hit by that bus. So anxiety saves our lives. Yes, very true. Absolutely necessary. At these times, what you're speaking of, though, I would say, sure, there's there's an innate wisdom that we probably have within us, and we should take it as a signal to sit down and examine things. But don't let the anxiety make the decision. Yeah, I think that's that's good advice. I, I'm thinking I have um, sometimes I realize if I'm, for example, think I should be sitting and writing, and I instead avoid that and go to the store, uh, and and then I get you know feel very anxious, and I can feel yes, I am I'm avoiding something. It, it's a sign for me of what are you doing here in the store? Oh yeah, I'm avo- <laughs> that's what I was supposed to have been sitting and writing. <laughs> now I'm avoiding. So, so sometimes it's 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 I think it's a very good guide 
sort of like an uh, inner voice. Yeah. Uh, and, and with the example that you're giving, that's, uh, I mean, <laughs> we could spend a lot of time talking about that. But the, the anxiety seems to be pointing out something that you're not doing. And uh, that is perhaps a little bit different than the anxiety where people are saying, I can't do that. And, and that's where oftentimes they're coming in uh, to see us and we try and help out. Yeah, but but also Andrew, I I think so, um, many times what I can think as a psychologist is more tragic than not doing things. I I I can feel it's the most tragic thing is when people are avoiding what's important to them. I mean, what what they love and what they would really like to do, uh, they're not doing them, and I think that's more tragic than you know avoiding a snake or avoiding a. Um, Something yeah. they're fearful of, and the and the cost of of avoiding the anxiety and the struggle with the anxiety can just be overwhelming. Yeah, tell tell us about the costs of um, this struggle. Well, it, it can take on nearly any form. Um, pretty much any aspect of life can be associated with the costs. If you think about friends and families, you can alienate people because of your anxiety, your unwillingness to do things, your unwillingness to go to family functions, um, lost opportunities. You can have missed opportunities at work. Um, oftentimes, people come in and, and they're telling me about these things, and what I realize, what they're really saying to me, is I've lost the chance to connect with other human beings. Now, these aren't the words of, of necessarily of the people when they're sitting in front of me, but certainly those are the themes that are that are at play and the emotional struggle just in and of itself if you're struggling to control something that's natural if you're struggling to control something that might not be controllable that can be exhausting and uh, it can consume certain people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think generally if i just wanted to put it in into one phrase it's it's a loss of freedom mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you just become um a little bit trapped instead of exploring many different areas mm-hmm. what you find you're doing is that you're limited and you're feeling controlled by by the anxiety okay so you could say that um instead of being actively choosing what you want you're reacting to the uh anxiety, well, trying to control yeah, yeah absolutely. so so andrew tell us uh, how an act therapist approaches anxiety um, I think that when people people come to see us, often what they're coming to us with is a, a very strong desire to get rid of the anxiety. And that's where the conversation needs to begin. Um, nearly all of them are, are suffering. They're suffering in the different areas of life. And so in our first conversation, these are the types of things that, that I'll be asked. I'll be trying to understand with them. And then I'll ask them about their about their attempts to get rid of the anxiety. And inevitably, everyone's trying to suppress the anxiety. Anxiety is not uh, a pleasant emotion. Simply by definition, it's not pleasant. And so you try and get rid of it. And you've already mentioned that you can run away. Um, you can run away physically, but you can also run away emotionally. Mm-hmm. 
uh, I will walk them through certain examples of, of how that is just uh, very difficult. Uh, if you want, I can I can show you one of those right now. Yeah, do that. Do that, Andrew. Well, to demonstrate this, I need to know something that has nothing to do with anxiety. Uh, Joanne, if you're willing, please tell me and everyone else what your favorite food is. My favorite food um, is lasagna. Lasagna. <laughs> oh, because you and I happen to be in the same category. <laughs> <laughs> now, tell me a little bit about your favorite lasagna. What qualities does your favorite lasagna have? Well, it has um, a, four different types of cheese in it, which is Parmesan, mozzarella, uh, ricotta, and uh, so it's a very cheesy, and and some Italian sausages and <laughs> <laughs> and garlic. <laughs> Can I? <laughs> okay. So, all right, and anything else? I mean, do you make it yourself? Yes, or, I do. And what herbs do you put in there? I t I put in um uh basil and um coriander. Uh and I yeah, and mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's good enough. Um and so I assume that you like to eat it warm. Mm -hmm. Hot or, or steaming hot or just warm or when, you, when it comes out of the oven as quick as possible on the plate or what are we yep, talking about? Yeah, pretty much so, yeah. Okay, all right. So now that I have a pretty good idea of what your favorite food is, I have a very simple task for you. All I want you to do is to not think about lasagna. <laughs> about anything else you want anything you want but please don't think about lasagna don't think about the four cheese lasagna <laughs> and garlic and basil and coriander and <laughs> don't think about that all right and when you have achieved this all you have to do is just indicate in, in some way that you've done this but again it's very simple don't think about lasagna your favorite food and lasagna coming steaming out of the oven. Just don't. <laughs> so now I'll be quiet and, and you're just not to think about lasagna. <laughs> I can't do it. Come on, try. try. <sighs> it's impossible. <laughs> and and indeed it is a it's a rigged game. This <laughs> this is not something that people can do, and I will have to apologize after the show for uh, the chances are you're going to think about lasagna more today than you have. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and uh, and so when we're done, and I know the favorite food of every single person that I work with, um, and then we kind of draw the similarity and the parallel here that when you try not to have the anxiety it's equally as impossible to not have the anxiety. Mm -hmm. And there, just as you're nodding right now, people I'm working with tend to, to nod. They, they know that this is, uh, this is true. They've been struggling with it and working very hard to get rid of the anxiety for a long time. Yes. And so once we've, we've kind of experienced that, then we move on to the next crucial, crucial part. 
And that is asking the questions about what matters. Mm-hmm. Matters. When we lay the anxiety aside for a moment, what is it we're living for? What is it that you get up for in the morning? What is it that at the end of your life you want people to say, you know, this is what you've done. This is what it meant for you to have lived. And we get into very formal exercises about this, asking the people to think about the epitaph, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. own epitaph. And we also just have an ongoing conversation about what it is they, they really, really deeply, deeply care about. And the reason we need to know this is because if we can't get rid of the anxiety, and I really wish I could, I wish I had that magic wand, um, but if we can't, and at times we need to have the anxiety in order to do the things that we really, really care about, mm-hmm. then we have to be clear about what it is we really care about. Okay. And so then the rest of, I mean, it's much easier said than, than done. The people who go through this are very, very brave and they work very hard. And we always, always keep in mind what it is that they care about. And that's what, what dignifies this work. That's what I am working for. I am always telling them when the going gets rough that let's remember what it is that it, you're here on this planet to be doing. And that's what we're going to keep keep our eyes on. Okay, so so would you say that this is um, you're working on cultivating willingness to have the discomfort? Exactly, exactly, and cultivating willingness. I know you've talked about that in in your your show in different ways before, but to have the willingness, um, there, there's two parts to that. You have to develop the skill. Of, ha- of being willing, and then you have to have the reason for being willing, and that's what we were just referring to there, the, the, your values and the things you care about. So once you have that, then we, we do work in many different ways of cultivating willingness by being mindful, by um, trying to accept the fact that there, this anxiety is not going to hurt you. It may tell you that it's going to hurt you, but it, it in and of itself is not going to hurt you, and that takes practice. It takes. Do you have any? Do you have any example of any trick how uh, people could actually, in a, you know, in that particular situation when they feel overwhelmed by anxiety, what they could do? Well, um, I think the first thing I would say is, if at all possible, don't run away. Um, again, I know that's easier said than done. And if you manage to not run away, it's probably going to feel fearful and, and ang- anxious. And so at that point, it may help to acknowledge that. Say, I, <laughs> I realize now that I'm having this anxiety. I'm noticing what this is doing to my body. I'm noticing that my hands are tingly, that my heart is racing, that I'm sweating. I'm noticing all these things that my mind is racing. And I can have this. There's, I'm big enough for this. There's space enough for this and the things that I care about so that I can this and walk towards, the, as we said before, the things that we care about. Okay, so you, it's sort of like becoming this Michelin... Uh, the Michelin guy, you know, the tire person, that, that you, you kind of make yourself bigger 
uh, to absorb what's going on inside of you. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to picture the Michelin guy right now, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. That's kind of, he's kind of blown up, so you, hmm. So you, you, you uh, see yourself as the arena, maybe you could say, and what's going on in, uh, in you as sort of the, the content that arises and falls and arises and falls, but you are the container of it, is that? Absolutely, yeah. So Andrew, could you give us an example of someone you've worked with? I mean, I, I, I'm thinking about a young woman. She was very, very brave. She came to see us. Um, she told us, like everyone else, she wanted her anxiety to go away. And we asked what that meant. And uh, she was essentially unable to leave secure situations. We call that an agoraphobia. Um, had trouble leaving home. And the, the radius in which she was comfortable in moving around her neighborhood kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And, you know, when we got into it, it turned out that what she really wanted was the ability to stay together with her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Her boyfriend had taken a good job, a good job, but this good job was 100 kilometers away. And that was well beyond her radius of comfort. And so, as we identified that together, that this work was really going to be about her gaining the independence that she had lost and that she told us that she wanted and about her living the life that she wanted in connection with the boyfriend and how she wanted to be a woman. And she, um, she did indeed cultivate uh, a willingness through many of these exercises. She struggled. She had a lot of difficulty breathing whenever she got out of her comfort zone. And she worked very, very hard. And at the end of all this, she, she very pleasantly told us, look, now I'm able to go see my boyfriend. I can go on this 100-kilometer trip. By the way, I'm not stopping there. I'm, I'm, I'm going elsewhere. Hasta la vista. And, <laughs> and we were so happy that she was able to to cultivate the ability to have the anxiety. And she, of course, did come back and talk to us. And, and she said that, yeah, she did still feel anxious sometimes when she was in new places, new cities. Uh, traveling, of course, was a, a new aspect of life that she hadn't had before. And she said, boy, I, I'm so glad that I, I learned to sit with the anxiety because if I had to run away from it, I'm a far away from home now. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a good sign of, of that you're growing as a human being, of this uncertainty of going into new dimensions. It's, you know that you are, you are challenging yourself and doing new things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us today, Andrew. Well, thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Andrew Gloster, who is the assistant professor at the University of Basel in Switzerland. Andrew is an anxiety researcher and clinician. He's also on the board of the German-speaking Society for Contextual Behavior Science. You can read more about Andrew on his homepage by clicking on his name on this week's program, ACT, Taking Her to Hope, on webtalkradio.net.
a new year 2013 has just begun, and many of us feel anxiety about what this year might bring. Today's program has helped us to understand that it's perfectly fine to feel anxious. In fact, you can enjoy it. You know you're alive. Anxiety is only a problem if you start reacting to it in ways that reduces your life quality. So the more time you spend trying to get rid of your anxiety, the less, less time you have for fun and those meaningful activities. So have fun in 2013. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Joanne, please see her website at joannedahl.com or click on the host website button in front of you on the webtalkradio.net page. You may also see her books, The Art of Science of Valuing in Psychotherapy, Living Beyond Pain, Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy to Ease Chronic Pain, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Chronic Pain, Values in Action, and Epilepsy, a Behavior Medicine Approach to Assessment and Treatment in Children. All of these are found easily by clicking the cover or going to Amazon.com. We hope you'll join us again soon for another episode of ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope.